joining me on the pavilion today is former Pro Tier star Alviro Peterson. Alviro, thank you for joining me on the podcast. Welcome. Thank you. It's only a pleasure. Look forward to it. Great. Um, Alviro, um, you are one of the few people whom I know who announce themselves on the international stage with the century. How was that? If, if you can take me back to that moment. Yeah, obviously it was, um, it was, it was a great moment. But, um, you know, leading up to it, I think it's important uh, to mention that I wasn't supposed to be in the playing 11. Um, Mark Boucher, I think, pulled up with a back injury the night before. And um, I was drafted into the team. Um, but also, it was made clear that, you know, you, you're into the team because of an injury. And, um, you know, so it's not a long-term thing. But uh, <laughs> obviously, I then scored 100 on debut. So it will only take someone, uh, you know, I don't know if it, I don't even know how to describe the person that would, that would leave me out after that. So... Nonetheless, I played the next test match and the following and, you know, for a while after that. So, but just in terms of that innings, it was in India, Kolkata. Um, and Eden Gardens, obviously, is a, it's a wonderful vibe. Playing against the world number one team at that stage in their own backyard. So, batting first was what every team wants to do in India. So, fortunately, we won the toss and we batted first. So, all the butterflies that were flying around in my stomach, um, you know, it didn't fly for too long because you had to get out there um, and get busy with, you know, the actual work, the work of backing and scoring runs. Unfortunately, I scored 100 um, and, you know, it was a great moment in, in my career and still is. You know, um, you mentioned that you weren't supposed to be part of this 11 it, it just happened that you know they had called you up you were in the squad and Boucher gets this injury and I'm thinking you know in the run-up to that you know the call to the national squad when it came to you was it something that you were expecting as a player or was it a pleasant surprise well I think I think they were forced to to include me I say this because in 2008 and 2009, I broke, I think, five first-class records in South Africa for the most runs in the season, the most hundreds, the most um, hundreds in both innings in the same game. And I can't remember what else. And, and these records were held by um, players like Barry Richards, Peter Kirsten, Kepler Vessels, Martin Van Yarsfeld. So I think, I think they were forced to include me. But even then, while I was included in the squad, there still wasn't a space for me. Uh, I remember England came here um, playing a test series and there wasn't just a space for me. The, the team played well and I had to wait for my time. Uh, the series after the England series was then India away and um, that's where I got the opportunity. So I, I, I remember I, I played in the, in the one-day team while England was here, but I didn't play in the test series. And in that one-day team, I averaged 70 or something in that England series. I was the leading run scorer for South Africa, second highest 
in the whole series. And then when the test matches came about, there wasn't a, a place for me. So I had to wait. And I waited until India, Mark Boucher, that is back. And that's when I got in. So to me, it wasn't, it wasn't a surprise that I was included. I think, um, you know, a lot of coaches told me, if you want to get in, you have to back the door down. You have to break it down. And I think I've done that. You know, and this is something interesting. You know, you literally broke down the door. You weren't just knocking, you know. And, you know, South Africa has a very complicated history and a very compli- complicated present. Let's not shy away from that, you know. And mm-hmm. was this something that you had to do, a player of color like you? Was this the thing that was needed for you to say, you know what? I can't knock. I have to just take it off the hinges and make my entrance. I think there were, I was in the frame of mind of, I don't want to compete against another player of color. I want to compete with South Africa. And that was, that was uh, something I, I've done, um, especially at the start of that 2008 season. I said, I want to be the best in South Africa. And what does it take to be the best is to score hundreds, is to score runs, is to make sure that you're out there in the middle, batting and scoring runs. And I think that's what I've done. I think too many players, especially nowadays, they compete with their mates. And that is it. Instead of saying, I want to be the best and certainly the top five batters in South Africa. Because if I do that, I will play for South Africa. Um, instead, I think a lot of people now look at positions that's available, strategically try and position themselves into certain positions. Whereas I think the old school type of thing where you just wanted to be the best, you compete with, yes, your, your teammates and the people in your province, but you compete with the rest of South Africa as well. Um, and I think that is something that lack at the moment. But for me, I made a conscious decision to really take on the whole of South Africa. And in that season, you know, obviously breaking all those records um, from a selection point of view, they had to now start looking at me. And even though I broke those records in four-day cricket, because of what I've done in that uh, series, four-day series, they had to somehow find a way of including me in the, in the national team. And I got the opportunity to to play in the one-day team. And even there, like I said, I was the leading run scorer of South Africa against England in that series, batting at number five. And most people will know that, obviously, I'm an I'm a opener, top-order batter. And that was the only position as well where, where they could fit me in. And yet, I've somehow managed to, to get it done. So now let's try to go back to rewind where all of this started. Where did Alviro's journey as a cricketer start? Well, I was eight years old. Um, uh, growing up in Port Elizabeth in Galvindale, attended a primary school, Afrikaans primary school, Fontaine Primary. And uh, I grew up in a, in a poor family. <clears throat> and I'm happy I grew up as a, as a poor child because, you know, where the things you achieve in life, you, it's more memorable because you know where you come from. And at the age of eight, our school sent 
students to I was eight years old and and this specific day South Africa played Pakistan in a test match at St George's Park and our school said we will provide the transport if you can pay for your own ticket and we will send students to go to St George's Park unfortunately my my parents couldn't afford it couldn't afford the ticket and I stayed behind at school um, actually went into school and I was only one of a few kids that were around. But the PE teacher had a, a small TV in his um, office or his classroom. And every now and so often I would just pop in and wanted to see what the score is and that. And as I popped in, I saw South Africa walk onto the field and I said, that's what I'm going to do. Now, remember, he looked at me and he laughed and he said, it doesn't happen to kids coming from this community. He said, you might as well forget about that. And I said, that's what I'm going to do. And obviously, I think 20 years later, I walked onto the field for South Africa in a test match. Um, and when I started my foundation in 2013, I went back to the school, uh, obviously launching my foundation and helping other underprivileged kids as well, hopefully at some point realizing their dreams. And uh, it was good to go back to the school where it all started and everyone knew my journey. Everyone thought that it's never possible. But it's only impossible until you try. You know, um, you mentioned, if, if it's okay, can I ask what job your, your father and maybe your mother, your parents, what were their employment? So my mom was a factory worker. She worked at EverReady, which is the battery company. Um, my, my dad was in the army, but they divorced when I was two years old. So I grew up with a, a stepfather who was a, a taxi driver. Um, and, you know, it, life, was, life was tough. But to me, it was great because I played outside in the streets. I competed with other people. When Wimbledon was on uh, on TV, we would play tennis in the street with wooden bats. When cricket was on in the summer, we would play in the streets, our street versus another street. Um, and that that was my, my um, understanding of growing up, being out there, trying something, playing soccer, playing cricket, playing tennis doing things, um, whereas I don't see a lot of that now currently. But in terms of that, I'm, I'm grateful for the way that I grew up. I'm grateful that I grew up in a, in a poor family because you appreciate things more. And, and I'm grateful for my family who supported me. And, you know, coming from a background where you don't have these things around you, you know, and, I would like to ask about your first bet. You know, do you remember it? How old were you when you got your first proper bet? Yeah, my, my, my first proper bet, I, I saved some money. And, and this is where my mom played a, a massive role as well in that. Um, I would, because she worked as a factory worker and they would get paid every Friday. So what I would do is I would go and buy you get these broken chocolates from Cadbury that you buy, um, you know, it's very cheap. You buy them, you put them in packets, 
And then I would give it to my mom and say, please go sell this at work. And she would. But, um, you know, if someone buy on a Monday or a Tuesday or whatever, they only pay on the Friday. So normally if I send chocolates and, and sweets and later on it became perfumes, selling perfumes, on Friday I would get that money, we save all that money up. And Nigel Browers, who have just passed on recently, um, who also played for Galvandale, he was the player of the year at Galvandale High School and they gave him a laser bat. And I remember that was my first bat because I bought it from him. I paid a couple of hundred of rand for it um, and I bought it and that was my first bat. And, and you know, and I, it, was, it was really a good bat and, and I scored a lot of runs with it. But if you just look back at it, the people that played a role in me getting that bat was obviously my mom played a massive role in that. Um, I needed to be disciplined in terms of making sure that I save my money to actually buy a bat. And then also Nigel Browers, um, you know, as I mentioned, the late Nigel Browers now who passed on, has also played a role because, you know, I saw the guys and he was older than me and, and Asheville Prince and uh, what they achieved for the club. And the club was like a brotherhood. You know, it was a, a safe haven for, for people that come from the community where gangsterism and drugs is the order of the day. So that was almost an escape sport being something that, that really united all of us. Um, so I'm also grateful for all those people who played a role in my career and, and, and that helped me to where I am today. And, you know, you mentioned that, you know, there was all of this all of these other things happening around you, you know, there's, there's drugs, there's gangsterism, there's, and you say that sport, whether it was playing with tennis with wooden bats or cricket, just, you know, with makeshift equipment, kept you away from that. And as we look in the present, how do you see sport helping in those communities, even though as you mentioned, there's not a lot of uptake on, on sport. Yeah, I think sport has got a, a big role to play. Um, but we also have to look at uh, the role models of sport. The role models of sport are the proteas, cricketers, and the springbok rugby players and the Bofana Bofana soccer players. And those are the role models because people, especially young people, want to see what they aspire to. And we need those people to be visible. We need those sporting federations to be visible to say, this is what we, we are about. And effectively, they're selling a dream. Cricket South Africa need to sell a dream to a boy in a township or a girl in a township to say, you can become this. And it's about selling those dreams. And then it's up to the, to the individual to really take it on board and say, that's what I want to become. Because that's what I did. When I was eight years old, I said, that's what I want to be. Even though people laughed at me and said it will never happen, it's a pipe dream, you might as well forget about it. I knew deep down in my heart that that's what I want to be um, because that dream was sold to me. And I think that needs to happen. I think sport has an incredible power to, to really be the catalyst in communities where other things overpower. If you, if you ask 
a child from from the Cape Flats uh, or Calvindale in, in Port Elizabeth or any drug stricken uh, community, if you know the, the local drug lord, they'll probably name them by, by names. But we need to get to the position where if you ask a child, who is the fly half of South Africa or the number four batsman for South Africa or the bowler, the spin bowler, they need to be able to say, that's the person and this is what he or she is about. Um, because we need our sports stars to be up there and people need to see them in a light that they want to aspire to be like them. So sport does have an incredible uh, position in communities and in this country. And you did mention that your foundation, when you launched it, you went back to your school, you know, to try to sell this dream to others too, to help them in, in essence to see a world that's broader than their immediate world. And I, I didn't ask, but what is the name of your foundation? My foundation is the Alviro Peterson Foundation, launched in 2013. And I'm, I'm the type of person that likes to do things in the background, behind the scenes. Um, I don't often talk a lot about it. I would mention it, but I don't often talk a lot about it. But, but my foundation has put over 100 high school students through school by paying their school fees and supporting schools and communities with equipment and having challenges. My foundation was, has also embarked on a journey of bringing kids from Port Elizabeth, putting them on a plane. Most of them never even flew in their lives. Putting them on a plane to Johannesburg and let them experience, uh, you know, something outside of Port Elizabeth outside of Galvanar, outside of the northern areas, playing against clubs like Yesteros Cricket Club or coming to Midrand and playing against private schools. Um, and that was, was um, the purpose of, of it, to take people out of the community and say, there's something bigger out there for you. You know, don't just get caught up in this. There's something bigger. And, and I must say, we are fortunate that some of our students that we've assisted in, in high school and putting them through school are now in universities studying to be all sorts of stuff, medical students, etc. And I'm glad I could have a small part to play in their lives. And we still have contact to this day with them and they assist wherever they can as well in terms of just being there. Um, so that's, what, that's effectively what the foundation does. Um, but you you can understand that in this day and age, you know, getting people to support, especially corporates, to support foundations and these sort of projects becomes hard because, um, you know, COVID has struck a, a big blow to everyone, every sector. Um, but, you know, we, we, we keep rising and, and that's the beauty of South Africa is that we just find a way of rising. And um, to to go back to to your career, to your journey as a cricketer, if I may ask, uh, who was the, the player whom you aspired to, to be like, your role model, your, the one you wanted to be like? 
You know, a lot of people ask me that and, you know, in diff- different contexts, there's, there's obviously different things. It's just as a normal player, because the way he dominated, yeah, you know, I, I like the way Ricky Ponting played. So that is someone that I looked up to in terms of the way he plays, the way he bats. But then aspiring to be someone, I always just wanted to be, find what, what is it that really make me tick? You know, what is it that, that make me want to go out there um, on, a, on a Christmas day and go practice? What is it that really gets me to wake up four o'clock in the morning and go take a run or go to the indoor nets and pulling someone along, whether it is getting a guy who works at the petrol station to come shoot balls to me? Um, you know, so when I was, when I was at Northern's Academy, I actually befriended guys working at the petrol station, the, the, the petrol jockeys, and one specific one that I would get and I'd say, yes, 50 bucks, come shoot balls to me in the indoor center. And, and, and you know, you need to have that, that drive, um, but I needed to find what is it that makes me tick. And I looked up to a lot of players, but as I mentioned, in different contexts. And... <clears throat> What were probably some of your most transformative years as a as a player? You know, where you probably think at this point I made a significant change or improvement or leap in the way you either thought or played the game. Well, I was. Uh, that was the the season of two thousand and eight. So I made my ODI debut in two thousand and six. I was in and out of the the team in 2008, at the age of 28, I then made a decision and I said, this is the year. You know, it's going to be make or break because your age is obviously um, getting on now. So you need to make a play. And that's where everything shifted. The mindset shifted. I became more clever in terms of what I wanted to do. I was, I was open about my fears. Um, and, and I needed to deal with them. And I think that's where everything started changing and, you know, things just mm-hmm. fell into place. Mm-hmm. And um, you, you had seasons in, in the UK. Yeah. How was that? Mm-hmm. Um, what, was there, a, in your first season there, was there a culture shock that you sort of experienced or... Did you just trans- transition into it seamlessly? No, there's no, there's no way how I transitioned into county cricket seamlessly because I'll tell you why. We played Pakistan in, in Dubai. And in the stands, now there were no one in the stands. There were only a few people around. Played a test match. Um, and in the stands, there were three gentlemen. They were from Glamorgan. One was the chairman of Glamorgan. The other one was the managing director of cricket of Glamorgan. And the other one was the CEO of Glamorgan. And they were there to sign me. We were there to sign the agreement that I would captain Glamorgan in the 2011 season. So obviously Sky Sport saw them. And I think, you know, there were already things happening that Glamorgan would have a South African overseas professional. So my first season in the UK, I captained Glamorgan. And 
Glamorgan were going through a lot of trouble at the time. Um, they needed to find their way, especially in one-day cricket, but also maintain um, their grip on four-day cricket. So then coming in as the captain, and there were there were trouble within the Glamorgan setup because Matt Maynard was the was the coach then. Didn't know that I was being signed as a as a captain, and he was a, a legend of Glamorgan cricket. So he stepped down um, because he felt that the executive obviously overruled him, etc. But then coming in, we we needed to get the, the ship back on track, and I and I and I feel that we've done that. That year, I was also the leading run scorer for Glamorgan in all formats. So I believe that a captain needs to lead from the front. You need to lead with runs, or if you're a bowler, you need to lead with wickets because then you will get the guys to really pull together. And I managed to do that, um, but it wasn't it wasn't an easy task just going in and playing county cricket because now you're coming in. I remember in that January, I flew out, my wife and I flew out to Glamorgan, um, to Wales, and we needed to, you know, First of all, meet the players, meet the staff, um, really see where we would like to live. And all of this in, you know, when it was snowing outside and cold and during the winter. But, um, you know, we, we've managed to get things done. And um, fortunately, I had a good season as well. And how was your transition, you know, um, Firstly, let me ask this before I jump ahead. Um, when did you start playing club cricket? Well, I started playing club cricket, I think, when I was 12, 13 years old. Um, when, I, when I started club, so it was, it was quite young. I was quite young when I, when I started playing because you know, I, I just love cricket. I love sport. Um, I, you know, I love soccer. In the soccer season, I would play soccer. I was the captain of my club, Shatterproof um, Football Club. Um, made the Eastern Province under-15 soccer team as a centre-forward. Uh, played hockey. Um, I played all sports. If, if there's a bat in a ball or just a ball, we would find a way of playing something. Um, and club cricket, for me, I wanted to just get into club cricket, even if it's just practising or playing games and that sort of thing. So I played I started playing at a young age. And how was the shift for you from club cricket to, uh, was it franchise or was it provincial at the time? Yeah, so, so obviously I played in, in Eastern Province uh, junior teams, um, <clears throat> but also what was called then the Lennon Cricket Academy which was just under the normal Eastern Province Cricket Academy. So, um, you know, I think being in the Lennon Cricket Academy helped me with the transition from club cricket into provincial cricket. So when I moved up to, to Pretoria and I played for Estrus Cricket Club and then the Northern Colts and then the B team and then eventually the Titans, I think I think the the Lenin Academy helped me, but I was also in the Northern's Academy when I came up here as well. So I think all of those things just helped with the transition into professional cricket. 
And how was the move for you? You know, you are coming from your home town and you're going up to Pretoria where I would assume things are a bit different. How did you acclimatize to, to those conditions? Yeah, you have to dig deep. Um, and I don't want to lie to you, it was really difficult because you, you're moving away from a hot meal in the evening. You know, mom would sort out a, a nice hot meal for you where now you have to sort it out yourself. Um, and that's where I really appreciated what my mom has done for me. Um, so moving up to Pretoria, it was, at times it was lonely. But I knew that eight-year-old boy inside of me that said, that's what I'm going to do. That's what really drove me. And it, when, when it got hard, you just have to dig deep. And that's what I've done. Um, and, and like I say, my journey, if I just look back at it, yes, it was hard. But in the end, it was worth it. And how old were you when you moved to, up to Pretoria? I was 18 years old when I moved up to Pretoria. So it was, it, it was young. I was young. And, you know, also taking up responsibility because coming to Estrus where they paid me 2,000 rand a month um, and it was a three-month contract and you have to show what you're worth, you know. Um, and also, you're effectively the batting professional. So when it comes to runs and people look at you, you need to come up with the goods. So I'm glad that that sort of responsibility was put on my shoulders at a young age because I think it certainly helped me in my captaincy and leadership career moving forward and also at international level. And what sort of individual were you in the dressing room? You know, did you, were you extroverted or did you like to read the situation and then throw in a word here and then? What kind of? Well, I'm the, I'm the individual that speaks my mind. So, you know, I will, I will call a spade a spade. A lot of people might not like it, but I think uh, a lot of people appreciated that because, you know, if, if, if I don't like something, I'll make it clear that I don't think this is right. I don't think that that is right. And, and not just throw stones at the situation, but also give some advice in terms of, I think this is what we need to do to get it right. You know, so, so also gives solutions. Um, but yeah, reading the situation is important. Um, I like to listen before I speak um, because I think it's important that you understand where other people come from and what the background is to, to what they're saying. I've always been a person that has challenged the traditional view of um, racism I've challenged it throughout my career and I got some flack for it, but you know what, in the end, uh, it's always a case of what you fight for is not in vain. You know, you mentioned that you had to fight racism in your, in your career. Um, are there any sort of, I know that every incident stands out, but are there any, let's say, more poignant ones, you know, where the ones that probably won't come easily to mind? Some you would have to maybe take a moment or two to, to recollect, but some of the tough situations where you faced racism. 
Well, I think I think there's nothing specific that stands out. But when I when I mention racism, it is about making people understand that you need to value my input in terms of what I bring as a cricketer, and you need to value the input of my my fellow players and that one and that one and that one. And I think because I've done that, people were very wary that they couldn't take chances with me. And and I'm glad I've done that, even though, yes, there were backlash because, you know, if you don't score runs, they'll say, yeah, you're just a big talker. So while you say something, you need to make sure that you put the runs on the board, you know? It's almost to silence them, that there's no backlash, that there's no one coming back and say, oh, you know what, look at you, you just talk. And 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 even in when I played, um, at first class level, it was always about, I'm going to show you that, you know, why I'm playing in this team. There's a reason why I'm playing, because I'm good enough. And the reason why I'm playing is because I score runs and I score big runs. And that was the mentality that I, I needed to have because, I mean, the, the sharks and the vultures are waiting out there for you to fail so that they can just say, Look at this one. He's a quarter player. And um, are they, you know, I like to think of this a lot, that, you know, in a lot of cricketers' careers, there are coaches that play significant roles in either development or opportunity. Are there any coaches that stand out for you? I think there are quite a few coaches that, that stand out. Um, you know, Dave Nosworthy, when I was at Estrus Cricket Club, a young man, he was then the director of cricket at Titans um, and then the coach. So, you know, someone that, that, that really embraced the idea that, you know, I think this guy is good enough um, and really helped me along. And, and, and I'm grateful for that. And then also, you know, he then became the coach of Lions, where we teamed up. I was the captain, he was the coach, and we, we started something to get the, the franchise back on track. Um, Jeffrey Tejana then took over after that. We had a great relationship. I remember um, Jeff was at the National Academy, and I phoned him one day and I said, Jeff, can you chat? Um, you know, I'd like to chat to you about something. Can we meet somewhere? We met at the Centurion Lake Hotel and we sat down and he wasn't quite sure what was going to happen. Um, but after discussions with the board, etc., of Lions cricket, uh, we wanted to offer the job to Jeff. And um, at that meeting, I made him aware that, you know, you'll become the, the coach of the Lions. Um, and then ever since that time, we really forged a good relationship uh, as captain and coach, and we were very successful. And I think it's a, it's it's the way the team worked, and also the the national team coaches um, along the way, they changed all the time. But um, you know they had some sort of a a role to play in in how we operate. But I was always straightforward with them. They knew exactly where they stood with me, and um, I know exactly where I stand with them. So I think there was a mutual respect uh, between the coaches. And, and, and yeah, 
as I mentioned, I'm quite grateful for everyone who played a role in my career. And is there any, you know, knock? I know the, well, there are lots of hundreds, but is there any knock that is that one that sticks out in your mind? You know, the best knock or knocks that you ever had? Yeah, I mean, uh, there are plenty, but just in terms of test cricket and international cricket, we... And I, and I don't think a lot of people will forget this. When Hashim Amla got his 300 at the Oval, the scorecard read, Graham Smith and myself, we opened. Graham got 100. I got north. Hashim got 300. Callis got 100. And I remember the media. They were all over the show saying, he must be dropped. You know, someone else must get an opportunity now. It's time he must... It was effectively saying, that's it. This guy's not good enough. He must be dropped. And the next and the next test was at Headingley, Leeds. Um, and we lost the toss. England won the toss and they decided to bowl. I was given another opportunity. But I must say I was backed by Gary Kirsten as well. And he said, listen, I know there are uh, people within the media saying we must drop you, but I back you because I know you can score hundreds and you can score big hundreds. And um, I was dropped in the 20s of Jimmy Anderson by, by Alistair Cook in the slips. And I managed to score 182 overnight. I think we were 220 for five. I was 120 not out. And that is almost just, you know, putting everything to rest in terms of people saying you must be dropped and, and that is the, the thing. And, and just to, to take you back, before I got my, my test, my test before that naught was against New Zealand where I got 150 in the first innings and 40 in the second innings. And then I got a naught and they said he's not good enough. He must be dropped. And the next innings was 182. So, so that to me was, was really the, the innings that stood out for me. Um, the way I had to almost just silence everyone. I've done it a few times in my career, but it, it was the one time that I really wanted to make sure that they understood what I'm about. You sort of had to remind everyone that, hey, this is what our video does. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and... Um, Throughout your playing career, are there, you know, standout partnerships or people whom you enjoyed betting with more than than others? Yeah, I mean, I enjoyed betting with guys who are fearless. I enjoyed betting with guys who are prepared to uh, to grind it out, that are prepared to to do things. Um, and the one partnership that comes to mind will probably, I mean, Hashim Amlan, I, my first test match, we put on over 200. And I think we've done so a couple of times where we got big partnerships, uh, getting South Africa out of trouble or setting up the stage for the team to, to do well. Um, also against Glamorgan, which was my former team for Lancashire. Ashwell and I put on 500, um, you know, 
So I think uh, I just like to bet with guys who are fearless and guys who are prepared to take it on. Fantastic. And if I may ask now, um, you are off the field now for some years now. So what are you up to? I'm up to a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm up up to quite a lot. Um, I'm I'm a director of sport and culture um, across all our schools um, at Christchurch, which is in Midrand. Um, So that keeps me busy. Um, It's not just a looking after cricket or looking after this. It's about looking after all extra murals um, and setting up strategies and working with budgets and, you know, performance development and player development, staff development. So, so that keeps me, keeps me busy. Um, I'm also a consultant, a batting consultant for Central Harting Lions across all the age groups. Um, working with the batters there. Still run my cricket academy. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty busy. Um, often I don't find time for myself. Um, and it's just really getting involved with, with youngsters and, and performances and, you know, getting people to live up to their dreams and, and being the best that they can be. I'm also a qualified mental coach, performance coach. So I do work with other sporting codes, work with golfers. I work with athletes, soccer players. Um, so you are trying to get them to be the best. And what gets you up in the morning? I know you're doing all this, but there has to be that, that thing that drives you. What is it? Well, the thing that drives me is to be the best that I can be. That's important. So... Uh, you know, something that gets me up in the morning is is looking forward to people fulfilling their potential. And um, whether it's working with uh, a golfer in terms of their mental game or a soccer player or a cricketer or consulting um, and working with coaches or working with batters or, or simply working with organizations to get the best out of their teams um, or going to work and making sure that we continuously progress in terms of sport and culture. Um, And those are the things that really get me up in the morning. And obviously I still, I'm still contracted to SABC as a, as an analyst and commentator. So, so that really keeps me close to the international game as possible. Um, And I love that. I love the, I love the competitiveness of um, international sport and calling it and, and, you know, giving my insight in terms of experience of playing international cricket. So, so that, is, um, that is something that gets me up in the morning. But above all, all of those things that I've mentioned and all the achievements I've achieved in my life, the greatest achievement for me is just being a dad and a husband. And those are important. Family is important to me. Um, and, and seeing my, my boy take up a bat and hitting a ball or golf or hit. Uh, kicking a soccer ball or my daughter doing the same you know often when I when I go running and I do a lot of sprints I still do a lot of sprints outside the yard in the street and you would just see two little people sprinting with me 
you know, and, and those are the, the memories that we have to build. Um, for me, it's about family. And, and I really enjoy that. And that is the greatest satisfaction that, that I can have. Alvira, thank you very much for giving me your time and for sharing your journey. Um, it's, it's something that has really left me with a lot of thoughts. Thank you very much. You're welcome. It was great chatting to you. Fantastic.